Father, we bow our hearts this morning as we approach you in worship, as we approach you in spirit and truth. And Father, we just want to say thank you. We want to say thank you for delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We thank you this morning that when our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned their backs to you and traded your truth for the serpent's lie, and when they deliberately disobeyed your word and joined the devil in his rebellion against you, that you didn't cut them off and banish them from your presence without hope and without a promise. We thank you this morning as your people that in cursing the ancient serpent, you promised that one of Eve's offspring would come and crush the serpent's head even while he himself would suffer in doing so. Thank you that even when you brought the flood years later upon the world of the ungodly, that you even then preserved a remnant of people who were chosen by grace to preserve your promise to send someone to deliver us. Thank you for taking an idol worshiper like Abraham out of his sin and preserving the promise through him and Sarah even though she was barren and past the age of childbearing. You truly are the God of wonders, the God of miracles, the God of unimaginable power who works all things according to the counsel of your will and your good pleasure. We want to say thank you this morning for setting up David's throne and David's dynasty and promising that it would be a throne and a dynasty that would last forever and that in the fullness of time you sent forth your son from heaven the radiance of your glory, the beauty of heaven, the visible image of the invisible God, to be born of a woman, to be born of a virgin, in fulfillment of your promise in Eden, in fulfillment of your promise to Abraham and to Israel and to your servant David. Father, this morning when we think of all that you have done in making promises of grace and faithfully keeping those promises, our hearts are filled with wonder and a sense of awe that you, the God of heaven, the God who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, whose presence fills the universe and eternity, would condescend to lift worms like us from the dust of sin and death and raise us to the highest of heights, to raise us to yourself where you have hidden us forever, even as you hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. We want to say thank you for giving us your son, for giving us your spirit who is at work in us, reminding us and assuring us of our status as your children adopted through your son. We want to say thank you for giving us yourself in all of your fullness and all of your joy, in all of your goodness and grace and faithfulness. We want to say thank you for clothing our nakedness and covering our shame and covering our filthiness and our ugliness with the spotless, immaculate, radiant righteousness of your Son, the Lamb who was slain in our place and for our sin. Oh, Father, who are we that we should be lifted out of such misery and hopelessness? Who are we that we should look upon your face? And who are we that you should look upon us with grace and mercy and pity? Who are we that we should be granted the unspeakable privilege of calling you our Father? Who are we that your son would choose to take us as his bride forever? We who have known nothing but spiritual adultery, harlotry, idolatry, 
unfaithfulness and cosmic treason against you. And who are we that your spirit with all of his joy and his love and his goodness and power should come and take up residence in us as his temple? And Father, even when we find ourselves asking these questions this morning, your spirit turns our gaze away from ourselves as we look to you. He turns our eyes away from looking within and asking who we are because we we know that the answer has been, is, and will always be found solely in who you are. The God of all grace, the God of sovereign mercy, the God of unspeakable joy and goodness and love. Father, may your love, may your goodness, may your, your, your joy be the source of strength and perseverance for this congregation of believers. May every one of your children here this morning be granted encouragement, help from on high, a renewal of hope, and a fresh burst of power to love you, to love one another, to walk humbly before you, and to walk boldly before a dying world as we testify to the gospel of your Son. Father, we think of other local congregations today, specifically Bethel Bible Fellowship, and we pray the same for them, that the believers there would be radiant as they look to you. We pray for their pastors, Jim Bailey, Matt Carr, Jeff Cedar, Todd Garrison, Joel Stoltzfus, and Jim Thompson. And we ask that these men, by your spirit, would be equipped more and more to walk before you in holiness as they feed and shepherd your flock there. As we look to your word now this morning, as our light and as our life, we ask that you would guide us and grant us insight and understanding so that we would love you more dearly and see you more clearly and follow you more nearly and worship you more fervently. We offer our thanks this morning and we lay down these petitions before your feet, clinging to the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the exalted name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lamb slain for our redemption, the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the second chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews and chapter 2 this morning. As we continue to think about the birth of God's Son into this sin-cursed world, I want to call your attention this morning to a precious, priceless, powerful portion of the Word of God, one that calls us to wonder and worship, especially once we understand and grasp its message and what it has to say about our Lord Jesus Christ and our relation to Him. And so, as I trust you've made your way to Hebrews chapter 2, as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to Hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-arousing, Christ-exalting word of the true and living God. I'm going to begin by reading at verse 1, even though our focus this morning will be on verses 5 through 18. Verses 5 through 18. 
I've entitled this sermon, The Maker of Angels Made Lower Than Angels. The Maker of Angels Made Lower Than Angels. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to begin by asking you a few questions that I want you to just answer in your own heart. What is it that is wrong with this world? Why is it that when we look at the human race, we see a people at war with one another, a people obsessed with themselves and this present world, 
a people suffering from a kind of spiritual myopia, or better known as nearsightedness, which means that they can see what's immediately in front of them, but they are unable to see what is farther away. After all, King Solomon tells us that God has put eternity into the hearts of men and women. And yet mankind, by and large, seems to have no concern for eternity. The Puritan Thomas Manton, known as the Prince of the Expositors, said this, A man's greatest care should be for that place where he dwells the longest. Therefore, eternity should be in his scope. And yet we look around, and sadly, we look at ourselves sometimes, and because of a pandemic that is far worse than COVID-19, because of the rampant spread of spiritual nearsightedness, we suffer from an inability to see the big picture of our eternal destiny and the purpose for which we were created. Now, your answer to the question, what is wrong with this world, may have been something along the lines of sin is wrong with is what's wrong with this world, or the fall, that's what's wrong with this world. Or it may have been something along the lines of the fact that we, by nature, are separated from our Creator, God, and King. And of course, all of those answers are true, and they flow from the doctrine of the Word of God. But the passage before us here in Hebrews chapter 2 offers another perspective and another answer. Oh, it doesn't nullify, it doesn't cancel out those other answers that you may have provided, but because of the complexity of man's plunge down into sin and death, back in Genesis chapter 3, the diagnosis that Hebrews chapter 2 offers us when it comes to considering why the human race is in the condition that it is, simply offers us another way of looking at humanity and why it is the way it is. You see... According to the Bible, and specifically Hebrews chapter 2, the problem of history, ever since Genesis chapter 3, when man fell into sin and death, the problem of history is that man has lost his dominion. The problem of history is the problem of dominion lost. Dominion lost. You'll recall that after God said, let us make man in our image, he said, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we read that after God created man in his own image, God blessed the man and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in blessing Adam and Eve and in giving them dominion over all the earth, they were to fill the earth with God's image. They were to fill the earth with God's knowledge and God's glory as God's image bearers. In a very real sense, when God blessed our first parents and gave them this authority, he placed a crown on King Adam and a crown on Queen Eve. 
making them his vice regents here on earth as he entrusted the earth to them. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? The serpent deceived Eve in the presence of Adam, who should have exercised his God-given authority to subdue everything around him to include this maneuvering serpent. But he didn't. Both he and his wife defied God's command and they ate of the forbidden fruit. The serpent that Adam was supposed to subdue actually subdues Adam and consequently all of Adam's offspring so that the Apostle John could say now that now the entire world under Adam lies in the power of the evil one. We know that man's dominion was transferred to Satan because Paul in Colossians 1 tells us that those whom God redeems, he redeems from the domain of darkness. The realm of darkness, the authority and power of darkness over whom the prince of darkness reigns. It was a tragic day when Adam and Eve removed their God-given crown and placed it on the serpent's head. The problem of history is the problem of dominion lost. Of course, by dominion, I mean sovereignty. I mean control, authority, lordship. Man lost his sovereign control and authority over the created order over which God had appointed him. And now we see man as a slave of sin and a servant of Satan. And you might look over the world and think, well, wait a minute. We do see man reigning over everything today, don't we? We have zoos where man has subdued animals and some of the most terrifying creatures, don't we? Well, yes. But our zoos have several inches of thick, impenetrable glass between man and the beasts for a good reason. Man has lost his authority over the beasts. You might also say, well, I look out and I see man ruling the world and making world-changing decisions and advances in technology. Look how far the human race has come with technology and subduing the earth as it relates to farming and such. It looks to me like man is ruling. But ruling while abusing power and oppressing others in order to rule is not true rule, at least as God describes it. Ruling as a tyrant is not the God-honoring rule to which God appointed Adam and Eve. And even though we've advanced in cultivating the ground for food, it still requires labor and sweat and hardship and a, gro a ground that jumps back at man and rebels against man. Nature fights back. The sun beats us down. The wind hinders our progress. Droughts threaten us. We are clearly not in control anymore. And what's worse is that behind all of these physical realities, we by nature are under the authority and dominion of the devil. Paul stated very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2 that every unbeliever, that is, all those who are still dead in their sins are following the prince of the power of the air. 
the spirit that is now at work, right now, at work in the sons of disobedience, which is Paul's way of describing the lost. The lost. Paul told Timothy that unbelievers are in the snare of the devil who has captured them to do his will. The problem of history is the problem of dominion lost. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews explains to us here in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer to the Hebrews has been expounding to his readers the glory and the supremacy of God's Son. And not without reason. You see, these first century Christians had come out of Old Testament Judaism and they had embraced Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah King. And when they did that, they turned their back on the temple because they had become God's temple in Jesus, as we see in chapter 3. They also turned their back on the sacrificial system because they understood that Jesus was God's once and for all sacrifice to put away sin. They also turned their back on the, Le the Levitical priesthood because they had come to lay hold of Jesus as God's ultimate high priest who completed the work God gave him to do and sat down at the right hand of God, something Old Testament priests could never do because there was always work to be done. He sat down because he finished his work. And when they turned their back on all of this because they understood that Jesus was the one to whom all these types and shadows of the Old Testament were pointing, they immediately faced the wrath and oppression of those still unconvinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They started experiencing the very persecution that Jesus predicted would occur after his ascension to heaven. In Hebrews 10, we read concerning these Christians that after they were enlightened and after they had come to Jesus Christ, they endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. We read there in chapter 10 that some of them were imprisoned, and they joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they themselves had a better possession in heaven, an abiding possession. They realized that this world was not their home. And so take it. Take the world and give me Jesus, as the song says. But some time had passed. Perhaps the joy of their salvation in Christ has diminished. The spiritual honeymoon, so to speak, is over. Persecution had e eclipsed God's promises. The world's hostility was now casting a shadow over their heavenly hope. And they were in danger of going back, going back to their Jewish roots and the religious customs of the old Mosaic Covenant. And the reason the author, who is unknown to us but known to God, is writing them, the reason he's writing them is to plead with them not to turn back to Judaism, not to turn back to a God-forsaken system of worship. And they would find themselves, if they were to go back, they'd just be going back to an empty husk. And they would find themselves without a covering from the wrath and judgment of God on the last day. And he'll get into that in chapter 10. He says, if you turn your back on Christ, there is no shelter from the wrath of God. 
There is no covering, no salvation, no safety. All because they threw away their confidence in Jesus. And so the writer's approach in order to sever them from the types and shadows of the old covenant, his approach is to expound upon the glory and the supremacy and the greatness and the superiority of Jesus Christ over and above all these realities. In this particular section within the letter, the author is explaining the superiority of Jesus over angels. Over angels. You see, it was common knowledge that the old covenant law, the law of Moses, was delivered by angels. That's confirmed by Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and by Paul in Galatians chapter 3. And this tradition comes to us out of Deuteronomy 33 verses 2 through 4. And so the writer to the Hebrews argues from the lesser to the greater, showing the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant over the Old Covenant law and the angels through whom God delivered that law and is saying, in effect, you're going to turn your back on the Son of God and the new covenant that he established to go back to a system of worship that was mediated through angels who are nothing but servants of God and servants of God's people. The end of chapter one, the angels worship Christ. The angels are not sitting at God's right hand. The angels didn't hear, hear the phrase from God. Sit right here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He says, that wasn't the angels, that was Christ. Why are you going to turn your back on Christ to go back to a system delivered by angels? Appointed by God, yes, for a time, but ultimately mediated by angels. And then we get to verses 5 through 18 of chapter 2, our text today. And he continues to argue, argue and to demonstrate the supremacy and superiority of Jesus over angels. But the argument now shifts gears and focuses on who will rule the world to come. It's a fascinating argument and an approach that he takes. He looks, as it were, at these Hebrew Christians and says, you want to turn back to a system of worship mediated through angels? Well, I'm here to tell you that the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth, will not be ruled by angels. It will be ruled by Jesus and his people. So continue to cling to Christ. That's the argument of verses 5 through 18. The coming world is, will be subjected to Christ and his people. So don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to your Jewish roots. The angels are mere servants of Christ and his people. And as we make our way through this section of the Word of God, I want to do so by calling your attention to five developments of thought that the writer calls our attention to as he concludes his argument as to why Jesus is infinitely superior to angels. And the reason I chose to preach this particular passage this morning is because at the center of it is the incarnation of the Son of God. And by incarnation, I'm referring to the time when the eternal Son of God took upon himself human flesh when he entered this world. The pre-existent eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, left his throne in heaven and became what he was not, human, while never ceasing to be what he was, eternal God. 
And so I'm going to be presenting these five developments of thought in the form of five answers to the question, why was the Son of God born as a man? Why was he born into this world? Or to keep it in line with the author's own words, why was the maker of angels made lower than angels? And as we're going to see, he was for a little while by means of his incarnation, made lower than the angels for the following five reasons. Number one, to be the last Adam who would reverse the curse. Number two, to be the pioneer of our salvation who would bring us to glory. Number three, the reason he was made a little lower than the angels by his incarnation was to be our sanctifier who would not be ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Number four, to be the promised seed of Eve who would destroy the devil. And fifthly, the reason for his incarnation was so that he would be our merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. The maker of angels was made lower than the angels in his incarnation. First and foremost, Verses 5 through 9, to be the last Adam who would reverse the curse. To be the last Adam who would reverse the curse. And I get that title out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam. The father, as it were, of a new humanity. A humanity marked by salvation and life and light and glory. Notice the argument in verse 5. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It was not to angels. Remember, there's a warning at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2, and he connects that warning to verses 5 and following by the word for, or gar in the Greek. He's connecting it. And the argument of chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, is that, hey, you better pay much closer attention to what you've heard. The gospel. Because if the message of the old covenant mediated, given through angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, a just punishment, how much more will we receive that same punishment and wrath if we neglect the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, who is infinitely superior to angels? He says now, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. They had this fascination with angels. He says, the coming world, the future world where righteousness dwells, it's not going to be subject to angels. And he goes on in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. And now he's not betraying ignorance here. He's not saying, you know, I think there's somewhere in the Old Testament. I, can't, I don't know where it's at. He's more concerned with just giving you the text of Scripture than quoting the exact reference. And he does that throughout. I mean, if there's anyone who knows the Old Testament in the New Testament, it's the writer to the Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews just is full of rich knowledge of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant law. He says it's been testified somewhere, and he goes back to Psalm 8, which Christian read in the beginning of our service. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? What is man that you are mindful of him? You see, Psalm 8 is really a celebration of the created world as it's been entrusted to mankind. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands, the sun and moon. That's your finger work. You've set these things in place. And when he thinks about the grandeur and majesty and the greatness of God who fills immensity and fills eternity, he turns to this little speck of dust on this ball of dust called earth and says, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you even give him a thought? Or the son of man, which is also a reference to mankind, that you care for him. Here you have galaxies and nebula and stars and Andromeda and all these different galaxies and yet you, your focus is in on this little bitty human being made from dust that you filled with your breath and your life and you care for them and you give them food and you take care of them. Who is man? What is man that you're mindful of him? And he goes on and he says, notice, you made him, man, for a little while, lower than the angels. Has that ever gra- uh, gripped you before? We often think of the angels as these superior beings and glorious beings, and they are. But do you realize that you were created with a destiny that was going to be greater than that of the angels? And that's where he's going to get at here. Yes, the, the angels are glorious and they grip our hearts with awe and wonder and fear and dread. And when people interact with them in the Bible, they fall at their feet as though they're dead. And yet man was just created for a little while lower than the angels because man's destiny was eventually to become greater than the angels. So much so that we are told by the Apostle Paul that do you not know that one day you will judge angels? He made him for a little while lower than the angels. And you crowned man with glory and honor, the fact that you made them in your image, that was God saying, you're the king and you're the queen of my creation. You are my image destined to convey my glory and mediate my greatness throughout all the earth. Go fill the earth with more image bearers, with the crown of my glory. Go and fill the earth with glory and honor. Be fruitful and multiply. And verse 8 says that God put everything in subjection under his feet, as we saw earlier. He put everything in subjection under man's feet. And now the writer to the Hebrews turns away from Psalm 8 and gives this commentary in the middle of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to man, he left nothing outside his control. That's the writer's way of saying everything meant everything. Everything was placed under man's dominion. Everything. But he adds this very sad commentary at the end of verse 8. Look at it. At present, that is, however, right now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to man. That little word there in the Greek, in your English Bible, yet, is so, so important because it tells us that God has not abandoned his purpose for humanity. You see, when he says we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, that means that one day everything will be subjected to man again. So even though Adam and Eve took their crown when they fell and they placed it on the serpent's head and they bowed down to the serpent, God didn't say, oh, you guys ruined my plan. What am I going to do? 
his purpose from beginning of, beginning of time was to have man rule his cosmos. Oh yes, he would be the supreme ruler, but in his joy, he wanted to do it through his creatures. That Don't ask me why, that's the way he wanted to do it. It's the way he wanted to control this universe was through the, his creatures, his image bearers. We don't yet see this, which tells us that this is still God's plan. God's plan is for man, humanity, filled with God, with a passion for his glory. It is still his will and his purpose and his plan, and he has not removed the promises that this will happen. He has not swerved from the plan. He has not taken a detour. All of redemptive history is in keeping with this plan to have one day everything under man's feet again because the problem of history is the problem of dominion lost. And we're talking about man's dominion. And so he says, right now, we don't yet see everything under his feet. In fact, we see the opposite. We see man enslaved to sin and Satan and the fear of death. Man is not reigning as God intended him to reign. If there's any kind of reigning today, it's reigning through immorality and sin and brutality and tyranny and godlessness. We don't see everything under man's feet. That's why we have the zoos with cages for the animals. That's why we have uh, safety guidelines in place because this world is a hostile world to man. It's cursed and it wants man's destruction. We don't yet see everything in subjection to him. And then verse nine comes along. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The problem of history is the problem of dominion lost. We don't yet see everything under man's control. We see man under control by the world. Man under the control of sin. Man under the control of the devil. Men and women under the control of one another's sins. Man is in bondage. Man is in sin. Man is hurting and broken. We don't see him reigning as God intended him to reign. But we do see one. We see the perfect human. The human being par excellence, as they say it. The flawless human being. The perfect man. The true man. The last Adam. We see him who for a little while, precisely 33 years, <laughs> made lower than his servants. Remember, the end of chapter one says, are not the angels just servants of those who are to inherit salvation? Jesus becomes lower than the servants who are serving his people. Not only was he made low to identify with his people, he was made lower than the servants who serve his people. That's the beauty of the incarnation. He humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a slave underneath the heavenly slaves, the heavenly servants, the angels. He condescended in such humility for a little while. For a little while. 33 years. For what purpose? Well, it tells us here, we see him 
crowned with glory and honor. Wait, that's what happened to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. Remember? Psalm 8. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us give them dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over everything that creeps on the earth, over absolutely everything. Be fruitful, multiply the earth, have dominion over it, and subdue it. And in doing all of that, God, as it were, placed the crown on Adam and the crown on Queen Eve and says, it's yours, reign with me, enjoy. And what happens? They forfeit it for a lie. Well, the last Adam comes into the picture hundreds of years later. And he's also crowned, like the first man, with glory and honor. But it came with a cost. And that cost was the cross. He humbles himself to the obedience of the point, to, to, to the point of death. He humbles himself. He becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ goes to that cross in obedience to his Father's will. He dies the death that we should have died after living the life that we should have lived. And he comes as the second and last Adam to taste death for his people, to reverse the curse, to reverse the curse by dying our death and by restoring man's dominion. You could think of our main number one bullet, right, as he came as the first Adam, sorry, the last Adam who would reverse the curse and he did that in two ways. Number one, to restore dominion to man, speaking of himself first and foremost, and then his people after him. And so he comes as the last Adam to reverse the curse, number one, by restoring man's dominion, crowned again with glory and honor, just like in the beginning, but infinitely greater now. And he also comes to reverse the curse of Genesis 3 and the fall into sin, to reverse the curse by dying our death. What was the penalty for Adam and Eve in taking the forbidden fruit, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. While the second Adam comes, the last Adam comes, and he goes and he bears the penalty for our disobedience to God. It's beautiful to see the big picture of the Bible here, isn't it? It's all harmonious. It's all one beautiful song, exalting Christ for the glory of God and the eternal joy of his people. He came to be the last Adam who would reverse the curse by restoring man's dominion and by dying our death. Notice that it was by the grace of God that he tasted death. The word tasted there means to experience it in all of its fullness. It doesn't mean a little sip. That's not the word here. It's to taste it in all of its fullness, in all of its ugliness, in all of its brutality. Jesus came, real blood, real flesh, real bone, born of a woman to die our death. Donald McLeod, in his excellent book, The Person of Christ, put it like this. Christ took a true body. This scarcely requires argument. Paul states explicitly in Colossians 2.9, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
as does John in 1 John 4, 2. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Of course, John also points us more pointedly and dramatically when he records that at the crucifixion, the soldier's spear brought a sudden flow of blood and water. And of course, these assertions, he goes on to say, are backed up by a mass of incidental details. Jesus was born in the usual way. He grew up, Luke 2.52. He hungered and thirsted. He slept and he wept. He sweated and he bled. He felt exhausted. He was beaten and flogged and wounded and nailed to a cross. He died. He was wrapped in grave cloths and buried. He rose, but even in that resurrection body, he could say, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you, as you see I have. He was born into this world as a real human being, experiencing everything that these little babies are experiencing. They had to learn to crawl. They got tired. They had to get in their parents' lap to take a nap. We somehow think that he, he just bypassed all of that and just grew up this mature man. No. He went through all the phases and stages of infancy and toddler and young child and teenager and the developments of his body and everything, friends. God became flesh. God became one of us. Real man. Real boy. Real baby. He goes on, he says, he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was of her substance. This underlies the fact that in all essential respects, Christ's human body was identical with our own. It had the same anatomy, the same physiology, the same biochemistry, the same central nervous system, and the same basic genetic code. But the, but the derivation from the substance of the virgin also means that she, as mother, contributed to him all that any human mother contributes to her son, except sin. Through the umbilical cord, he is this particular man, the son of this particular woman, the bearer of the whole previous genetic history of her people and the recipient of innumerable hereditary features. Sometimes we forget that. We're just fixated on his deity. Do you realize that we are saved, yes, by the deity of Christ, but also his humanity, his whole person, who he is, contributes to our glorious and great salvation. He tasted by the grace of God, the unmerited, unearned kindness of God. He came to drink our death in all of its horror. God poured out his grace when he put the cup of death to his son's lips in Gethsemane and says, you must drink and there's no other way. And when we see him like a worm in the dust, like Psalm 22 describes, agonizing in the garden like a worm and not a man and pleading with his father to see if there's any other way that was real. And he tasted death for us in all of its fullness by the grace of God. Well, secondly, we learn in the text that he came not only to be the last Adam to reverse the curse, but he came, secondly, verse 10, to be the pioneer of our salvation who would bring us to glory. The pioneer of our salvation who would bring us to glory. Look at verse 10 with me. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom everything exists, he's referring to God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder or the pioneer of their salvation perfect 
through suffering. God saw it fitting, proper. God thought it would be a good idea in his infinitely wise mind in bringing many sons to glory to make the founder, the pioneer, the captain of our salvation to make him perfect through suffering. Now, this doesn't mean that there was any moral deficiency in the Lord Jesus that he had to be perfected. That's not the case at all. He has already been described as eternal God and the radiance of God's glory, chapter one, verse three. Later on in chapters five through seven, Jesus will be described as holy and immaculate, unstained and separated from sinners. There was nothing for which he needed to be purified. The word perfected in the letter to the Hebrews, this is very distinct for the letter to the Hebrews, means to qualify somebody for an office, to qualify somebody for a task. And so when we read later on in chapter 10 that the law and the sacrifices in no way could perfect the consciences of the worshipers in the Old Testament, that just simply means that it couldn't make us suitable and qualified to stand in God's presence as his worshipers. It couldn't do it. And yet we are told later on in Hebrews 10 that by one sacrifice, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, does that mean perfected in a moral sense? Well, no, because we're, yeah, I mean, he provides the way for us to grow in progressive sanctification and to be glorified. But what he's talking about there is that we are already now perfected. We are qualified to stand in God's presence without guilt and without shame. He has perfected us. He has qualified us. Do you understand? He's not with sin, Jesus, and needed to be perfected. What this is saying is God saw it fit to put Jesus through the worst of the worst in order that he would come forth from the worst of the worst as the pioneer of our salvation. The word pioneer in the Greek referred to someone who would go into a city first and then bring a people with him, a forerunner, so to speak, a captain of an army. The language is actually very similar to when the Old Testament describes Moses and Joshua. You see, Moses was the pioneer of the Exodus, wasn't he? He's the one who, through whom God led the way, through the waters, through into the promised land, eventually through Joshua, right? All the way up to the Jordan. And then God replaces Moses through another pioneer, through another captain, through another head, through another forerunner. And he brings Joshua. And he raises up Joshua, and Joshua leads the people in. This is a preview of chapter 3, where he will talk about how Jesus is now greater than Moses and greater than Joshua, because he is the pioneer, the ultimate eschatological pioneer, this last day's pioneer who brings the people into glory. It's greater than being delivered through the Red Sea, greater than being delivered into the Promised Land. We are being delivered from the dominion of darkness and being transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We already have one foot in that kingdom right now, but the day is coming when Christ returns or when we go to glory, when we will have two feet into the kingdom. And we will give thanks eternally for this pioneer of our salvation who led us into glory, into the kingdom of heaven, the consummated kingdom, the perfected kingdom. He goes on and he says, he 
if you look back at verse nine, a lot of people look at that and say, well, look, this teaches that Christ literally paid the price for every human being. It tasted, he tasted death for everyone. Doesn't this support a universal atonement? Well, no, because look at the context. Look at the context. The everyone of verse nine fits within the realm of verse 10 when he talks about the many sons that God is bringing to glory. The everyone are the many sons. The all in verse nine are the many sons that God is bringing to glory. Moreover, verse 11 describes them as those who are sanctified. Verse 11 calls them Christ's brothers. Verse 12 calls them the congregation. And verse 13 calls them the children God has given him. So we need to understand the Bible in its context. We do not promote or prize a kind of universal atonement where we just say that Jesus died to provide salvation for anyone who would come and want it. No, no. He actually paid the price for a specific people. The children God gave him. The brothers and sisters whom would be, who would be adopted into his family. He paid the price for a people. And so, though the language seems to be universal at the end of verse 9, it's clarified by the context in verses 10 and following. So he came to be the pioneer of our salvation who brings us into glory. He has already gone as a forerunner into heaven. And we are awaiting him to bring us there and consummate our salvation and glorification. And so he came to be the pioneer of our salvation who brings us to glory. Thirdly, why was the maker of angels for a little while made lower than the angels? Well, it was to be our sanctifier who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Look at verses 11 through 13. We read here, for he who sanctifies, which in the context of the letter to the Hebrews, is Christ. By his death, he sanctifies us once and for all. Another thing you need to understand, and this is very, very important, when you read the letter to the Hebrews, whenever the word sanctified appears in the writer's thought, in the letter to the Hebrews, he is not thinking about progressive sanctification. He's not thinking about the process by which you are made holy day after day as the Spirit and the Word work in you and as God refines you and disciplines you. He's not talking about the process of sanctification. He is talking about definitive sanctification, which means uh, you could think of it as positional sanctification. This cup right now is in the realm of the unholy. Now, by putting it over here, I am once and for all sanctifying it and putting it into the realm of the holy. I've sanctified this cup by removing it from where it was and putting it into another place. That's the meaning of sanctification in the letter to the Hebrews. And now he says, for he who sanctifies, speaking of Christ, and those who were sanctified, the church, all have one source. And we know that source to be God the Father. We all have one Father. And that's why he clarifies in the next half of verse 11. That is why, because we have one source, one Father, that is why Jesus, he, is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is deep. Do you realize that this morning, Jesus is not ashamed of you, believer? 
you might be ashamed of yourself, as we often are ashamed of ourselves. Our shortcomings, our inconsistencies, our cold hearts, the flaring up of the flesh that sometimes just goes wild, our mixed affections, the constant pull of the gravitational force and pull of sin that is ever present within us. We find ourselves unable to look to God in prayer because we're ashamed of our own filthiness and ugliness. But I want you to know that the perfect man, the glorified man, the God man, looks at you as his brothers and sisters and he is not ashamed of you in the least. Why? Because of his perfect, spotless body that was offered in your place removed all of your filth, all of your unworthiness, all of your ugliness and godlessness, everything that would make a holy God turn away from you in wrath, he removed it. That's how efficacious, to use the old word, that's how effective his sacrifice is, that once and for all, I mean, you can read in chapter 10 that mountains of beasts and bloody rivers of animal sacrifices throughout thousands of years could not make one person clean. And yet Jesus, by his once for all sacrifice, comes and he lays down that body that God prepared for him in the incarnation through the Virgin Mary. That one offering, he perfects us for all time. And there's no more unworthiness about us in his presence. There's no filthiness in his presence. He sees you as radiant, spotless, as his white bride forever. That's good news. That is really good news. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters because of his sacrifice, because of his work, his high priestly work of not only being the one to bring the offering, but being the offering himself, as Hebrews goes on to teach us. As our high priest, he doesn't just bring this random offering, he brings himself so that he can be both priest and offering to perfect you for all time in the presence of a holy God. And let me tell you, because Jesus and the Father are one, we can say that if Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters, those of you who belong to him, you better believe it that God is not ashamed to call you his children. That's good news. And he quotes the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 22. He's not ashamed to call them brothers, verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is ironic because of where it comes from. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's the psalm that really characterized the entire cross work of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer of Psalm 22 is why was the Son of God forsaken by the Father on the cross when he bore our sin? It was for bringing these many sons and daughters to glory, to be part of the family of God. Christ was forsaken and abandoned by God when he bore the weight of our filth and our sin and the wrath of God. He was abandoned by God so that you and I could be brought in adopted sons and daughters of the living God. God is not ashamed of you and the son is not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to call you sister. 
This is our elder brother, the last Adam, the pioneer of our salvation. This is why the maker of angels was for a little while made lower than angels. As we prepare for landing this plane, we come to verses 14 and 16 and we learn that another reason, a fourth reason why the maker of angels was for a little while made lower than the angels was to be the promised seed of Eve who would destroy the devil. To be the promised seed or offspring of Eve who would destroy the devil. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Where God, after man falls into sin, turns not to man first, not to the woman first. He turns to the serpent, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, and in cursing Satan, he says this to him. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we are saying here in verses 14, 15, and 16 that the reason the Son of God was born in the flesh was to be the promised seed of Eve who would destroy the devil as Genesis 3.15 predicted. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, God's children, redeemed children, he himself, speaking of the Lord Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, namely flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He came as the promised seed of Eve in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of the ancient serpent. And we saw that one of the ways in which he crushed his head last week in Revelation chapter 12 is that he removed Satan from his place in being able to stand before God in heaven and accuse his children. And remember, the accusations are probably pretty accurate. Maybe exaggerated because he's a liar and the father of lies, but they are accurate. We are given the picture of this apocalyptic grand picture in Revelation 12 of this great dragon in heaven just accusing the brethren day and night, it says. That means continually. He's just pointing the finger, bringing accusations against you and you and you and, and bringing against accusations against all the people of God, specific accusations. Look at this guy. He's a blasphemer. He's an adulterer. He's unclean. Look at her. She's an idolater. She's, she's vain, she's idolatrous. Look at her, look at her. And when Jesus was caught up to heaven as the reward of his suffering, we read there that Satan and his angels were thrown down and they can no longer accuse the people so that Paul brings the challenge in verse eight and says, who is to condemn? Who is gonna bring any charge now against God's elect? God justifies and it is Christ who died, who was raised, 
and who more than that is right now interceding for you at the right hand of God, where he reigns and rules until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. But the only way in which he could conquer the devil and remove him from his place of being the accuser is if he died a death that counted as our death. Through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Now, the word power here is not the same word as authority. It's more of a, the, the, he had the strength of death. He had the power of death, meaning of, it's, it's more of a weapon. And we see that he had, in some way, some power over death in bringing people to, to death, right? He tempted people to sin, and the wages of sin is death. And so in that sense, he is the one who has the power of death. But I, I don't want you to walk away thinking that Satan has this control over your death or my death. Any control he might have is a borrowed control. It's a control that has been granted to him by God, like in the case of Job, or even like in the case of Peter. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked of you, he wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to thin you out and stretch you thin and make your life a living hell on earth, so to speak. And Jesus said, but I've prayed for you. But it's interesting that Satan had to ask to sift Peter, who had become one of the pillars of the early church. And Satan knew it. He knew it. But Jesus, by his substitutionary, vicarious death in our place for our sin, destroyed the one who has the power of death because now death has lost its sting. Death to the believer, I mean, now we can look at Revelation chapter 14 and sing the song of Revelation 14. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Blessed is everyone who dies in the Lord. As the Sovereign Grace music song goes, it is not death to die for the believer. It's not death to die anymore. Which brings us to verse 15. And not only did he destroy the one who has the power of death, but and he delivered, it was to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This gives us insight into why humanity is the way it is. Because man is terrified of death. And because of the fear of death, and because of man's enslavery to the fear of death, the idea here in the Greek is, is, is man is in bondage to this fear of death. Man might hide it very well, he might, he might conceal his fear of death, but when you remove all the self-made and man-made religion, when you remove all the coverings and all the pretenses of being strong and self-sufficient, there is in the heart of every man and woman the fear of dying because of the unknown. But there's not entirely the unknown there. We know, based upon Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, that there's a conscience there, and man knows that he's accountable to God, and man might claim to be an atheist, and man might mock at the idea of the existence of God, but deep down he knows that if he's an atheist, he is a Christian atheist. That is... He's an atheist. He doesn't want anything to do with the God of the Bible because he knows this God is ever-present and he sees him and he knows him and he has a record of his sin and all the debt that he owes God. And yet, 
for those who believe in Jesus, the last Adam, the pioneer of our salvation. The fear of death is stripped from our hearts. We've been delivered from the fear of death. One of the things that COVID-19, I think, revealed a couple years ago is when it comes to lost people, they, I mean, they made life decisions because of the possibility of getting sick. Why? Because this is all they have. This is all they have. And so you, you see certain individuals taking every precaution in the world, even today, because they might get sick. They might, they might lose their life. Well, why are they driven by such fear? Why are they driven by, by such dread? Because mankind, ever since Genesis 3.15, has been enslaved to the fear of death. But believers don't live with the fear of death anymore. At least they shouldn't. If they are, it's just because they haven't been informed by the word of God that death is no longer death to them. It's a chariot of fire to bring you up to your father. Now, I agree. It might be pretty scary, like how we might die. But that we will die is not a scary thing. How we will die? Sure. But I trust that God will give grace in that hard situation. But that we will die? Death has lost its sting. Read the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Where is your victory? Jesus destroyed the devil, crushed the serpent's head by his death, and then delivered. He, in a sense, he, he, he bound the strong man, and now he's taking captives that he's taken captive into his home, and he's releasing them and bringing them into his kingdom He's rendered powerless the devil, and now he's taking all his slaves and he's bringing them into the kingdom of light, transferring them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And they are no longer subject to lifelong slavery and the fear of death. He says, for surely, and he returns to this point of hammering home the reality that get your eyes off these angels and the, 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 the covenant that they mediated. Get your eyes off them. Verse 16 says, for surely... It is not angels that he helps, speaking of Christ, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And what's interesting here is that the word helps here is not like the word help down in verse 18. It's different. The one here signifies a laying hold of. God laying hold of someone, yeah, to help them, but by, by laying hold of them, I got you. The idea is, 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 is you're here, you're, you're with me, you're safe. And what's interesting is that if you turn back to Isaiah 41, Isaiah 41, many of you know this promise. It's a song that we sing, how firm a foundation. Beginning in verse 8, many commentators, including myself, who's not a commentator, but many scholars believe that what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is referencing Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. And you'll see why. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, which is identical to verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 2. You, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. 
I have chosen you and not cast you off. And look at verse 10, very well-known passage worth memorizing. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The writer to the Hebrews is more than likely thinking of this passage. And he's saying, it's not the angels that Jesus comes to help, to lay hold of with his righteous right hand. It's you. It's you. You are the offspring of Abraham. And by the way, this is not referring to the Jewish nation. Let's make that clear here, very clearly. If you read Galatians, the children of Abraham are those who are believers in Christ. Jew or Gentile. When Abraham looked up that night and saw the stars and God says, that's going to be the number of your offspring, he didn't just see the Jewish race. Paul makes it very clear that he saw you as one of those stars, as a Gentile. Jesus came to help the offspring of Abraham, help them in what regard? To lay hold of them and rescue them from the clutches of the devil. And now as we come to our last point, verses 17 and 18, he came to be not only the second Adam, the last Adam who would reverse the curse by restoring man's dominion and by dying man's death. He came not only to be the pioneer of our salvation who would bring us to glory and to be our sanctifier who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And fourthly, he didn't just come to be the promised seed of Eve who would destroy the devil, but he came, fifthly, to be our merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Look at verses 17 and 18. As we land this plane. Therefore, he had. There's a must here. It was imperative. It was necessary. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Truly human. Flesh and blood. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Merciful towards his brothers and sisters and faithful towards God. That's one thing about Jesus Christ is he is faithful in his work before the Father. He doesn't waver in his commitment. He doesn't falter. He doesn't, he's, there's no inconsistency about him in his service to God on our behalf. When he intercedes for us, he intercedes with perfect passion, perfect affection, and according to the perfect will of God as our high priest. And notice what his work is as our great high priest, the end of verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is, to offer up a sacrifice that would not only remove their sin from them and their account, but in removing their sin would also avert the wrath of God away from them. So propitiation is always twofold. It's a sacrifice that removes sin and then consequently the wrath of God that is due because of that sin, which gives us insight into what really happened at that cross. It wasn't just the Romans flogging him and nailing him to that cross because behind it all, it was the Father who offered him up as the sacrifice who would not only 
bear our sin in all of its fullness and all of its collective ugliness, but also a sacrifice that would absorb like a sponge all of God's wrath for us. God's righteous anger, God's righteous judgment. You see, it was not just love that held him to that cross, it was justice that held him to that cross. If a people were to be forgiven and accepted into the family, then someone had to pay the price for their sin. And bless God that he didn't choose to do it in you or me because we would still be paying our debt in hell and a thousand years from now we would still be paying that debt and a million years we would still not even come close to paying the debt that we owed an infinitely, infinitely holy God. Final verse, 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, tells us that when he was in the wilderness, those 40 days and 40 nights, there was suffering involved in that. He wasn't just on a casual camping trip in the wilderness. He was suffering. There was hunger pains. There was weariness, tiredness, fatigue. And the devil was allowed to just tempt him, assault him. We only read of three, but there could have been more temptations just hammering him, hammering him from every side. And he suffered while he was tempted. And yet, I would argue, and many commentators argue, that his suffering and his enduring of temptation is inconceivably different than our suffering because he knows what it's like to suffer temptation and never, ever sin. You've perhaps heard the illustration of the wind. Let's say you were in this terrifying windstorm and that wind is just beating upon you to the point where you just cannot do anything but lay down so that the wind passes over you while the wind tempted you to lay down as it were because there's no other way. It's too painful to endure. Your face is getting sandblasted. But we have one in our Lord Jesus who stood there and never once bowed in that wind. And so the suffering in his times of trial and temptation is so infinitely beyond what we would ever, ever experience in our deepest, darkest temptations. And therefore, because he himself has suffered when tempted, notice the, the good news at the end of verse 18. He is able, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, as we celebrate the Christmas season and the coming of Christ and the birth of Christ, we are not just celebrating the coming of hope. We are celebrating the coming of help. Not just the dawn of hope, but the coming of promised help, aid, assistance in our great high priest who pleads before us the once-for-all sacrifice of his blood and his death on our behalf. Hope has come and help has come for all who believe and trust in him. Friends, the Old Te- this, this recalls all of the Old Testament promises of God being our help. Sometimes I think that you and I, we complicate our prayers and we think that we have to offer these long, extravagant prayers for it to really be effective and for God to really jump into motion. 
What's wrong with saying, God, help me. Help me today. Help me not to sin. Help me to stand firm. Help me to love my wife. Help me to love my husband. Help me to love my children. Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. Psalm 37, verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. Psalm 46, God is in the midst of his city, his people. She shall not be moved. He will help her when morning dawns. The promise again and again of help and assistance and aid. And I just want to ask you this morning in light of who Jesus is and where he has gone to the right hand of God, are you making use of the help that he offers to you? Or are you so proud and self-sufficient that you're too proud to ask for help? His help. Help from on high. Listen to a simple prayer. Psalm 109, verse 26. Help me, O Yahweh, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. What? Less than 20 words there? But an effective prayer because it's meant. Comes from the heart. The maker of angels was made lower than the angels in his incarnation to be the last Adam who would reverse the curse, to be the pioneer who would bring us into glory, to be our sanctifier who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He was born as a man to be the promised seed of Eve who would destroy the devil and to be our merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. As we close, I want you to know that the story of the Bible is about God crowning humanity with glory and honor. But then man surrendering that crown to the devil and God coming in faithfulness and unwavering determination to restore that crown back to humanity, to reign with him forever. And he does this by sending his own son as a man to temporarily set aside his eternal crown of glory by trading it for a crown of thorns and by so doing, crushing the head of the serpent and shattering his crown. And as a result of his suffering and death, God crowns him as the last Adam. He crowns him as the last Adam with glory and honor. And now he takes that crown and he shares that crown with his new humanity who will reign with him forever. That's the story of the Bible. That's it. We lost the crown. We forfeited the crown. God came in the person of Jesus, laid aside his crown of glory, took upon a crown of thorns, gets exalted because of his faithfulness and his flawless work of perfection. God crowns him again with an infinitely greater crown. And now he shares that crown with all who trust in him. That's the Bible. Father, we thank you so much that the last Adam has come, that the pioneer of our salvation has come, the greater Moses, the greater Joshua to lead us into the new creation, that our sanctifier has come, that he's not ashamed of us, that the promised seed of Eve has come to destroy the devil and deliver us from the fear of death, and that our great high priest has come to offer the final sacrifice to intercede for us, for our perseverance, for our preservation, and to help us in times of temptation when it gets strong, when it gets seemingly hopeless. Father, remind us that this is what the birth of Christ is all about. 
We bless you and we praise you and we pray that you would save those who are lost in this room and sanctify your church. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.